there is so much out there to get mad about. Social injustices, class warfare, continued colonization, the act of destruction of our planet by those focused on profits and not people. We can find it overwhelming at times. The good news is there are equally as many, if not more, stories of people coming together and rising up against the forces at play. So the creators of Blueprints of Disruption have added a new weekly segment, Ravel Rants, where we will unpack the stories that have us most riled up, share calls to action, and most importantly, celebrate resistance. Welcome to another Rabble Rant. Yes, we are absolutely still talking about Palestine. Today's episode, though, will largely focus on the different levels of resistance that are happening worldwide. This is to serve two purposes. One, to get you folks out there as well so you know what's happening, get ideas, start to kind of really put in the work that's going to be needed to pressure governments to call for a ceasefire and beyond. But also to give credit where credit is due, there's some people doing some heavy lifting out there and it's truly inspiring. And if there's anything that we try to get out of this show is the motivation to disrupt. And that's that's exactly what's happening out there. And rightly so, because some of the updates that we're going to start with are horrendous. I imagine most of you out there are following the situation in Gaza and now the West Bank. And so all of the details aren't necessary, but one thing I wanted to focus on at the beginning of this episode is the extreme clarity to which we can see that this has nothing to do with hunting down Hamas, but with a land grab and the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. The latest report from Gaza's health ministry is that they have removed 881 families from the registry. These, The first time that we reported that number just a few weeks ago, it was 41 families. And so, although, again, most of you are quite aware of the death toll that is occurring it's important to emphasize that that Israel has expanded its operations to the West Bank. And so, you know, all of the argumentation that was used to justify civilian deaths, you know, that they didn't give up Hamas, that they didn't evacuate, all of that is going out the window. The mask is off and it's a cl- clear colonial land grab. And I think like This makes me so mad because for so long when they said, you know, why can't people from the north just run to the south or why won't Egypt take them or all of these other kind of, you know, at least they gave them warning to evacuate. And it's Palestinians know best that this was always a land grab. This is something they've experienced since 1947. And, you know, I understand beyond the logistics of not moving why they won't move because, you know, It's never been about religion. We've said that before on the show. This is always land and power, land and power. Why do they want this land? You know, you're thinking like they're pummeling Gaza right now. It doesn't look like anything anybody would want. You think that would be the point. But just this week, Israel 
signed leases for natural gas sites all along the coast. They signed these leases with companies like BP. And at the same time, we see new fleets launching for the logistics companies that transfer the natural gas to and from the Middle East, Europe, and Canada. A lot of these countries a lot of these companies are Canadian-based even. And in 2019, it was estimated that the oil and natural gas in the occupied territories with, was worth hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, that's what war has always been about, right? Particularly in these days, anything that happens in the Middle East is centered around acquiring oil. We've talked about it before, the whole reason that beyond the crazy Baptists that Santiago told us about, the U.S.'s main interest in securing a kind of bastion in Israel is entirely tied to oil. And also this week, it's been exposed that the intelligence ministry within Israel has recommended the complete expulsion of Palestinians from Gaza as a means of rooting out terrorism. I mean, that's why they put in their recommendation, but surely it's to facilitate this continued land grab of of Palestinian land. And I like we are witnessing the Nakba all over again. It, it's astonishing. Mm-hmm. What, you know what I've been... Someone brought up recently the Armenian genocide, and I realized that I don't know as much as I wish I knew about that, um, but I was thinking about like how much land and how devastating that was, how many people were killed, and it's more or less not something anyone really knows about. I mean, a lot of people that died even happened. The reason I'm bringing that up is because it's, it's like, it's interesting the way that like the way that genocide can, can, can happen without, without anyone doing anything about it. Right. Like we think when we, when we look at these issues, we, we like to think, you know, that there are, that there are limits that, humanity will eventually kick in and we'll do something about it that there'll be a point when you know enough is enough and we're not going to let this go any further but history has taught us otherwise history has taught us how easy it is to justify and 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 to rationalize the most horrible of things i i and i just i wanted to start off with that because regardless of whether or not it's oil or land or whatever their fucking motivation is like at the end of the day it all is the exact same thing which is genocide it's the killing of of innocent people of children of families and you know like because we, we, we get into like I was just thinking with the oil because I'm like, it's so fucking frustrating. Like, okay, again, oil. And it's like, whatever it is, we know that capital will always be put above human lives. And it's so frustrating. And you know that, like, people will try and justify these things. But I just wanted to, like, take a second and, like, settle into, like, the humanity of it all. Because that's what this is about, right? And 
it's you know I've had an interesting time talking to people about this lately I mean the vast majority like I, I I've found that the vast majority of people I speak to are actually very pro Palestine. It's, it's funny, even like I, I know someone who is currently like in the Canadian military who I was talking to, and they were horrified at what was happening. And I was shocked because it seemed like they have historically had such a capacity to to rationalize so many things and their nationalism and patriotism is so deeply rooted. But this issue was getting through to them. And I've had a few conversations with people who are not on the side of, you know, stopping a genocide. And those went quite interesting, too, because I found that the more you inform them, the more you see this idea that they had in their head crumble. And I'll get into, like, maybe some specifics later on. I don't want to delve into that too early, but... It's just to say that, like, I think that the more we look at this issue, the more it becomes clear, like, that this speaks, like, this This is such a, a test of our humanity. And, and at the end of the day, like, I don't, I guess I, I want to, sorry, I, I know I'm rambling a little bit here, but I, I think there's something very philosophical, which is I, I don't believe in evil. Really, I, I don't I don't believe people are inherently bad. I don't believe people want to do horrible things. And when we're seeing such horrible, horrible things happen before our eyes, it's hard to believe that. It's hard to keep that belief that that people are not inherently bad, that people at their hearts want good and to do right by others. But that's why it's important to be challenging and to be that's why it's important to have these movements to have these shows to keep talking about this issue to keep informing people because i find that when you when you bring it down to the root of things when you really bring it to the humanity of it all almost everyone i've ever talked to has been able to see that almost everybody even if it's deeply buried even if it takes a lot it's there and I feel like we need to remember that sometimes because I think we're very quick to write everyone off and to to otherize everyone. But I I don't believe that that is how people are. And sorry, I just... And I'm going to give it back to you, Jessica, because I just... I, I wasn't even planning that rant. I don't even know where that came from, but that just came to me. See, so yeah, like I get what you're saying in terms of the need to talk to people. Sometimes they just don't know the story. They don't know the realities of the occupation. And so they can start to kind of understand where we're at and relate to people. I mean, that's why you see a lot of actions like a vigil, because there really is work that needs to be done to just humanize Palestinian people at this point. And it really is a test of our humanity. But that's why I... I have written some people off and maybe that's not the right thing to do, but it's not even so much the folks that, you know, may or may not be categorized as evil, right? Because I don't focus on them for lots of reasons. It's the folks that I know, know and are silent. I 
I can't be their courage for them anymore. You know, we are too far into this. I feel like if I have not heard from you at this point, I have written you off as an ally. And like, I know that's not ideal. I know I'm glad that there's people that are still willing to do the work to come and go to comrades that should have done better and encourage them to do so. But I'm really upset and I'm really hurt by it still. And I just don't have capacity to, to be their backbone. Right. I, I needed them to be it. I can't, we, we, we shouldn't have to do heavy lifting for people who've already, you know, been exposed to all the work that's been out there. It reminds me of a conversation I had this summer. Um, under a willow tree in a Toronto park, just to set a dramatic scene. But I remember a friend of mine was talking about the concept of loving someone but not liking them. And like the contradiction there. No, man, that's kind of that, that, that hurt is too deep. But that's kind of how I feel. It's like I like I, I'm, I'm allowing myself to be open to like the love of humanity and love everyone. But that doesn't mean I won't be pissed off. <laughs> and that moment, like I won't that's I won't great. have like some strong anger towards inaction and towards not doing the work and not like like do not mistake my benevolence for for tolerance (laughs) because you know like the whole paradox of of tolerance you know i'm not tolerant towards (laughs) towards this kind of hatred and i'm not tolerant towards allowing being what's the word i'm looking i'm not tolerant to allowing genocide you know like and that's the thing is that like i i you know i have a lot of hippie friends of mine who are like very like you know love and like forgiveness and all that no i don't i don't believe in 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 universal forgiveness and and like i I think people need to to do the work to earn forgiveness and 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 otherwise you just let people step over you but i'm just yeah, there's penance to pay. Like if the folks want to come out and say something now and issue a statement now, that's going to have to be backed up by some really mm-hmm. hard public work. But what I'm saying is I'm trying really hard right now to to remember the humanity inside of all of us and know that that we're capable of of so much greater than than what is happening right now that when we're at Whenever we're experiencing the worst part of humanities, which is what we're experiencing right now, because it doesn't get worse than genocide. Whenever we're at this absolute darkness that we are right now, I think it's important to remember what we fight for and what goodness looks like and the better world we want to build. You know, I think of like Jay Yoada's quotes about revolutionary love. Let me say at the risk of seeming ridiculous that the true revolutionary is guided by great feelings of love. It is impossible to think of a genuine revolutionary lacking this quality. I think about that all goddamn time because I I feel that like that is like to my very foundation. I feel that. And yeah, anyways, I've I've taken up a lot of airspace with my tangent. But I think there's a lot of folks that are they feel it in their humanness. They are watching what is happening and are rightfully horrified. But here in Canada, perhaps have allowed themselves to be distance from what's happening because perhaps they can't relate to what it might be like to live in an open air prison, or they think this is strictly a, a Middle East conflict that they really don't have to worry about, that they don't play a role in. You know, we see a lot of politicians moving on to domestic policies and and the whatnot. 
But Canada plays a massive role in what's going on here. And that is only becoming clearer day by day as we have now sent the Joint Task Force 2 to Israel to aid in security, whatever that means. I don't know why powerful armies need essentially Delta forces who are also there meeting with Biden. Side note, those idiots showed the photographs of all the Delta soldiers on their website just to brag about Biden's visit. They had to take it down, but didn't blur the faces or anything. These are elite and secret military forces that God knows how how many other countries have sent into Israel. They are counterterrorism units. You get the idea of what these folks are up to over there. It's not security that they provide, but they are aggressive forces. Our forces literally boots on the ground. And I'm looking at the numbers from 2002. And just keep in mind, 2002 is a year, just last year, where Israel bombed the hell out of Gaza for three consecutive days. So all the people that are acting shocked at what's happening now, like this is a reality many, many Gazans have lived through many aggressions like this. But in that year, in 2002, Canada alone exported 21 million in arms to Israel. This is not the aid we provided to Israel. That is separate from the Canadian government. We sell weapons to them. And so, thankfully, a lot of people are quite aware of Canada's complicity and in particular, our role in the arms manufacturing business. And so we are seeing some actions directed toward that. So we're going to transition into the part of the show where we are going to give you countless examples of folks who have harnessed their humanity and their courage and are acting with radical love and putting a lot on the line for Palestine right now. Right? Have you seen out in Toronto the folks blocking the entranceways to Incas. Wait, which one's Incas? So Incas supplies military equipment to Israel, and you had a real kind of coalition show up there yesterday, so that is October 30th, the same day that we had sit-ins. We'll get into that in a second, but you got Labor for Palestine, Labor Against the Arms Trade, WBW uh, Canada, even the Najwan Support Network, were there along with, you know, other individuals who heard the call. And a lot of, you see with a lot of these actions, you're not going to hear about them ahead of time, right? People don't announce that they're going to do something potentially illegal uh, ahead of time. So there won't be posters for stuff like that. You really do need to get involved with these networks to participate in stuff like this or plan your own in conjunction with the Palestinian youth movement or uh, Palestine action or whatnot uh, so they can help boost the signal. But yeah, these folks blocked the entrances to these companies and they were arrested. Uh, Word has it that those that were arrested were released and the demonstration continued outside. So those actions, and we're seeing this, this, these kind of actions really originated in the UK and they stem from calls directly from Palestine to stop the bombs to forget about appealing to your politicians, that they are a lost cause at this point. They need to physically hit at the economic motivations here and stop weapons from being supplied to Israel. 
by any means necessary. I'm all here for that. And we can do that. Like, that is realistic. It is within, like, as far as disruptive acts go, think of the crowds we've seen across the world, and particularly in the Western nations that manufacture these arms. Like, we have the ability to shut down that supply chain. It's challenging, yes, but we can we can do that. And just think of, like, you know, like, how much of a sense of hopelessness so many people have felt watching the bombs fall on Gaza, watching the buildings collapse, watching everything from afar and not knowing what to do. No, we, we can do something about this. We must do something about this. Absolutely. And you, you hit on it, like, see the numbers. It won't be that difficult. What we need to do is when we plan these mass actions and like kudos to the people that are putting these on, they have been well organized from all accounts on the ground. This is no slight to them at all, but it needs to be planned in locations where you would have maximum disruption. And if you just wanted to mess with the supply chain, you just merely needed to redirect where you make calls for action. So the parliament or the economic center of a city on the weekend isn't nearly as disruptive as encircling a facility with hundreds, thousands of people and making it impossible for them to ship in and out. Uh, Not to mention it's really bad PR and it inspires other people to kind of do the same, right? To up the ante. And uh, nothing warmed my heart more this morning as I'm doing research for acts of resistance. And I come across uh, Palestinian action in the UK blocking Elbit facilities. That's E-L-B-I-T. We'll link a lot of this stuff in the show notes so you guys can see firsthand. But not only are they blocking the entrances, they have... (laughs) Big smile on my face, clearly. They are climbing on the roofs. And there is one photo, Santiago, of protesters on the roof at dusk with green flares and Palestinian flags and fucking sledgehammers. (laughs) And like, this is where we're at, people. We are talking about preventing a genocide. If you have the capacity to do something like that, kudos to the folks that are putting that on the line. They are risking arrest That is dangerous stuff, but really, to me, it seems like a necessary next step. And to to, to log on and see also folks starting to do that in Toronto, because we know that Elbite also has a facility in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, if our East Coast friends are listening. And this company is really pivotal in the tech that goes to Israel in terms of their military. So Canada not only has a role to play in this fucking genocide, but our grassroots and our labor and, you know, I've given up hope on the NDP, but everyone else has a role here to play in shutting it down. It reminds me of the interview the other day with Tyler Shipley when we talk about, you know, what the foundation of colonialism and our societies are built on right it's requires that particip- that active participation right uh from settlers and it's the same thing 
here in Canada as it is in Israel. And I just think about how, you know, like by not by not doing something about this, by washing our hands clean and saying, you know, okay, people are doing their jobs and, you know, I mean, who's responsible? The, the person who built the bomb or the person who fired the bomb, you know? Where does the response of where like where does the puck end? You know, the shareholders I, for the company who made the bomb. Yeah. You know, you or, or the going. person who paid. Yeah, like it's a lot of like the blame can be thrown all over the place. But I, what I think is, we just need to not be complicit, and we need to see that like, you know, all right, all right, it comes down to like you know, like it's I, and I'll say it, I've said it every episode so far, and I'll say it again. You know, like. If you are neutral in situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. Inaction is an action. Inaction is enabling this. It is giving permission for this. We have an obligation here to do everything we can. And I'm honestly like I've been. It's been. Like this has been like a yes, fucking finally moment. You know, like this is. Is what we're talking about, you know, and it, and it and this is the exact kind of resistance that we need, and we need to double down on it. And I'm like, I just wish I could participate more. Like, I we need we need to be amplifying. Like, if you can't physically go out, make sure that you amplify it as much as you possibly can. Make sure everyone knows that this is happening. Absolutely. When the it came across my feed for the sit-ins in the 17 MPs office across Canada yesterday. I was, my mission there, I had, I think, 20 minutes before I had to run out, was to get alt text on all of their posters so that you could send it out and um, just get as, put it in the private message box of as many people as possible so that they could spread it. Because when actions like that happen, folks need to be able to respond quickly, both with boosting the signal, like letting people know what happens, because the media will not cover this. This was not top of the news, even though this is one of the largest coordinated acts of civil disobedience in terms of uh, politicians that Canada's ever seen. You know, they were in Christian Freeland's office, Mel- Melanie Jolie, also Jagmeet Singh. So no politician, you know, got away unscathed, even if they're willing to make nice glossy statements in Parliament that just wasn't going to cut it for those folks. And so... If you can, and that was like many, many people, what they described it as was an independent action that was done in conjunction with the Palestinian youth movement. So, what that means basically is folks took it upon themselves to plan this with their comrades across the country using the networks that they have built for maybe Palestinian resistance, but more likely for climate action or housing or tenant organizing, like all these community groups that and friends and contacts that we make when we do these things, they need to be activated right now because when they are, you get things like this, right? Where really skilled organizers um, pull off some really slick moves. So uh, one of the important things I'd like to know about the actions that the Palestinian youth movement have, and it speaks to what Santiago was talking about before in terms of pushing the envelope a little bit. And it's not just a ceasefire, right? Yes, a ceasefire is the most urgent thing that's needed, right? These folks need to have bombs stopped 
from dropping on them, right? Like they are going to wipe out the people of Gaza unless we get a ceasefire. That is crucial. I understand why some people have made that their only focus. Again, not a critique, but when you look at the Palestinian youth movement flyers and their demands for all these mass actions, it also includes the end of Canadian complicity. So that could include aid to Israel and the fact that we are sending troops and green lighting them at the UN. An end to the Gaza siege, which started well before October 7th, right? Blockades on what could go in and out of the Gaza Strip and a free Palestine. So because I find like when we're in this fight and there is such urgency on something that's like life saving, it's hard to then think of all of the other demands, right? That just seem like gravy at this point. But in I just... It's important, I think, in this moment that there are people also including these demands, because if you don't now, you might lose the ability to do so, right? The bar will have moved the same way the political spectrum shifts, and it's so hard to pull it back. The Overton window. Yeah, like if all we ever want is like no bombs dropping on Gaza, and we become satisfied with that and not an end to the occupation of the the West Bank and, and beyond, then we're not really calling for peace. We're just calling for a cessation of this escalation. And and that's all. To put it in very simple terms, right now we are witnessing a genocide. A, A ceasefire would be a cessation of the genocide. But what are you left with? You're still left with an apartheid. Which is genocide, right? If you look at what the plan is, this is just a sped up version of the long game. Mm -hmm. It is. It's always been genocide has always been the goal, right? If you read the flyers that were dropped down on the people of Palestine before the Nakba, telling them how the ground would like swallow them up and fire would rain down unless they left. It was always to ethnically cleanse areas so that the state of Israel could control them for whatever end they want to tell you it's for. But you know, no, it wouldn't even be a cessation of the genocide. That would not be an end, mm-hmm. especially knowing the conditions in which folks are living. I know I said I would just go into resistance, but I read something the other day and I just want to share it. It was just a description and I'm not going to give it all of what people are experiencing in Gaza. And it spoke of the dust that is everywhere and the lack of water to make it harder to rinse this dust out, choking on this dust. No water means you're not going to the washroom. There's no running water means there hardly are. It's like 10% of toilets in Gaza are running right now. And so you can only imagine what that is leading to in terms of what kind of environment they're living in, the illnesses that are going to come from this, the noise that exists. So it's if it's not bombs, it's ambulances. If it's not ambulances, it's screaming, it's crying, and, and the smell that people are experiencing of death everywhere. And these are people who are surviving in Gaza right now, and that's what they're experiencing. So when I read that, I thought it was just kind of powerful. We often think of just the death toll and perhaps not what it must be like living in these conditions that will still exist even when the bombs stop. I remember reading something about how before this latest, like before everything that has happened this October, um, 90% of children in Gaza had PTSD. 
I mean, I, I imagine it's got to be a hundred at this point, or like either way, like regardless, like that is insane to me. What is what does that do to people? What does that do to this generation? Like this is millions of people. What like I I cannot imagine the collective trauma. This is I mean, regardless of what happens, this is like this is going to have generational effects generations into the future like what's happening here is going to be written in the history books as an incredibly dark chapter of humanity i will never be the same i will never be the same i just hope that like fuck like we need to like use this to like we need to learn here we need to do better like fuck i don't need like I don't, I don't know what to say anymore. I mean, we've said so much over like these, like these episodes. It's just like. But people know. are, people are Santiago. They're fighting back, right? You saw it with your own eyes. You saw half a million people in London. You saw 80,000 people in Barcelona, Jordan. There, I, I'm not sure there's many countries, even France, where they've tried to outlaw these protests. And we see Biden trying to equate these protests to neo-nazis and still we have massive actions planned right so there's a national day of action coming on november 4th that is coming up people this is mostly coordinated by the palestinian youth movement this is not a time for you to maybe sit back and check out what rally is closest to you these folks have done a lot of hard work to make it possible for you to throw your own local action there is no action too small because i'll tell you when Folks that feel the same way see actions in small towns or at least smaller urban centers. It is crucial work, right, that they don't think that that's something that only exists in the city, right? So absolutely consider logging on to the document we're going to share in our show notes. It's a Google Doc for people, individuals to endorse, organizations to endorse and sign up to hold actions in their own town and the idea is to make those calls those demands that i asked for before but also you know to keep creating these networks of resistance although there's like real urgency built around what we're doing folks i see them they're playing the long game as well right they're building long-term connections to go down the road webinars educational things are being planned to bring other people along because it can be hard doing the work that you're talking about earlier about talking to people doing those one-on-ones and challenging preconceived notions if you don't have the equipment right if you haven't maybe been in contact with the palestinian diaspora you haven't been exposed to that work you you know you know where you stand but you don't know enough to really engage so uh I recommended the resource link on the Palestinian youth movement, but you were talking about some great online resources that folks can dive into so they're better informed. Yeah, I was just thinking, like, I mean, there's tons of, of, of content on platforms like YouTube that have the entire history broken down. I, I, I watched several videos from Vox, uh, some of them really recent, some of them a few years old, that they go over the entire history of the region in a very informative way. I mean, it's great places to start to just learn. Like, if if you don't, like, if the word Nakba doesn't mean anything to you, go read. Like, go, please, like, le- like learn about Pick this. Pick up a like, book. 
people don't read no, books well, anymore, I guess. Well, well, you don't have to read a book. I mean, five minutes in front of a screen and you'll already at least have like the the basic information of what happened, like a basic timeline of, of the events. And, and it's important because, you know, let me take this back maybe to one of the conversations I had uh, where I, I was talking to someone who was essentially under the impression that before the Nakba, before the Nakba, before um, the creation of the state of Israel, that all of this land in Palestine was just empty wasteland, desert, nothingness. Terra nullis. And that the the Palestinians just gave the land to the Israelis because they were like, "Oh, this is worthless land, anyways." And then Israel went and built a super modern society, and now they want back because they want to take advantage of the prosperity. That's not even remotely close to what happened. But let me just. No wonder they believe that, right? Because that is the story many people have been told about colonialism, right? Africa, here in North America, that the it was terra nullis. They actually would drew it on the map as being uninhabited by anything civilized, right? It justified colonialism. So it's no wonder Canada accept that narrative. And much has been done by the Israeli state to perpetuate that narrative. Gada talked about it on the episode where, you know, they create wildlife reserves over top of Palestinian villages and pretend that they are bringing life to the land, that they're bringing water to the land as though Palestinians didn't have water up until then. And yeah, it's a real colonial mindset. It's, it's it, it comes back then to the other conversation I had where uh, somebody, um, there was someone from the Palestinian youth movement putting up uh, signs uh, in Parkdale, you know, end the genocide. It was for the rally last Sunday. And someone was coming up to them, you know, like, do you commend, condemn Hamas, yada, yada. And I uh, got into uh, a, a bit of a discussion with them. And one thing that, like, really stood out to me, you know, they, they were talking because, like, you know, I was talking about colonialism and they were like, oh, well, colonialism is a good thing because there weren't showers before colonialism. And I was really, like, I was really shocked at, at the way this person was talking and this person's from Ecuador, you know, I'm from Colombia. And I was like, kind of like talking, I'm like, do you know the history of your people? Do you know what the societies that existed here before look like? Like it, it comes back to the same myth of savages and it, and, and I had to like tell them like, do you know how indigenous communities are doing today? Do you think that they're doing better off today? Like, do you think that they're, they're thriving right now? And it was it's, actually it, indigenous people that taught Europeans to bathe. Yeah, I, I mean, I, honestly, no idea. But I, I, all I know is that the myth of the savage societies is exactly that, a myth, you know? And the it's not even like historical savages, right? This is still how we frame, how people are framing Palestinians. Mm-hmm. Modern yeah. day Palestinians, you know, living in the city of Gaza, they are calling them the children of darkness, Netanyahu used language like laws of the jungle. And these are all to hearken that idea and to dehumanize Palestinians as though there's not really anything there. This isn't really a genocide because Palestinians aren't really people. And it, unfortunately, that is how it works, right? When you're disconnected from that or you can't 
see yourself in their shoes. It's perhaps why genocides like the one in Armenia, you know, that didn't have, we didn't have that kind of exposure to the information around it where it was easily denied. And, and now that we're watching a genocide happen in real time, we can understand how that happens because we're seeing people deny the death counts in Gaza. Oh, well, let me see the bodies, they say, you know, and so much of the work that's being done is just to bear witness, right, to so much effort's being put into just pushing back on these narratives or otherwise, yeah, you could quite easily erase this genocide if it wasn't for the resistance. What I what comes to mind is a genocide that we were taught about in school, at least I was, uh, the Rwandan genocide, right? And that's interesting because in, in that situation, you know, the, the Hutu and the Tutsi are two fake categories, they're the same people. There was no genetic, biological difference. It was a completely manufactured... I think it was the Belgium who 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 created the two categorizations for people. But it shows you the way that, like, the, the power of dehumanization, where two people who have lived together, who are neighbors with each other, who share the same lives, who are... are, are there's no inherent difference between them whatsoever that you can't even tell... The difference between, like, there's no way to visually tell the difference between one people's and another because they're the same people's. And neighbor was killing neighbor. And it was one of the quickest genocides in the history of, or in recorded history, right? And, you know, like, we saw the way that the West allowed that to happen, the way they came in, took the white people, and washed their hands clean of the whole situation. While the world, that was paying attention, watched on in horror. One of the major differences, though, I see with what's happening now and what you're describing in Rwanda is they're not neighbors. Although we are all human in, in that sense, and they are in very close proximity with some settlements being within, obviously, shooting distance of Palestinian villages. They are not neighbors, especially if you're talking about the people of Gaza who have likely never even seen an Israeli from the way that their lives are structured. And so I think that's where a lot of the dehumanizing happens in, in this instance. And if you talk to folks who we've had testimonies on the Twitter space from folks that grew up in the Jewish community and the indoctrination that occurs with Zionism is heavy it and any a lot of it is predicated on lesser than less deserving than right all of it's predicated on on a certain type of people having the right to return and not others because they're less than that they are not chosen and so it's incredibly harmful that that continues that way you know and Perhaps when folks talk about the two-state solution, and you can just see that manifesting itself still. So again, like I don't know what the solution is, but I did want to keep going back to the resistance that we're seeing because it's important that folks know that people are rising up and organizing against this. Uh, Ramsey was a guest on last week's interview with Ground Up Waterloo. He was on our Twitter space as well, when, talking about Palestine and the actions around it. 
And although it might seem really obvious, I thought it was worth repeating to folks to fully understand that only external pressures will end this, not political pressures, right? Our governments need to feel as though their way of life is going to be disrupted here and force them to act or to make a real dent in the economic chain to Israel in order to cease their hostilities. And the, you know, there's all sorts of ways that people can do that. You don't necessarily have to chain yourself to a gate, right, and risk arrest. Santiago talked about coming across someone putting up flyers. It's quite possible and I'm not arguing with you, but it's possible they weren't even with the Palestinian youth movement because it's as easy as going to their Instagram and downloading the images that they have of the next action that's happening and spending a few of your dollars to go to a printing facility, getting a roll of tape and putting them up yourself. You know, you don't need to know who's doing it. You don't need to know somebody in the group. You don't need to go to a meeting first. This is on you. Like, just get up and do something like Get up, print images for posters. Even if there's not even an action in your little small town, print up posters that just say stop the genocide. Go right on the sidewalk everywhere you can go with chalk. Like the smallest act of resistance act as sparks that keep a flame alive, right? And that do eventually catch on. And, you know, I hope our labor can be a little bit contagious. We have seen Canadian labor dabble into this issue, most notably with Fred Hahn. And QP National passing a resolution that we talked about in another episode. There are a few unions whose positions are clear on Palestine, but we've not seen any official action. In Belgium, however, there's a transport union there that's refusing to load, you know, military equipment that is destined for Israel. And in the past, many, many times, we have seen port workers and railway workers take action to the same end, to stop weapons from going to war. These are anti-war movements. Anybody who'd like to frame it as pro-Palestinian at this point, I don't really give a shit, but there is no denying this is now a fully blown anti-war movement, right? People who don't need to be educated on Palestine just need to know that civilian deaths at this magnitude aren't can't be realized, right? So labor has a role to play in the anti-war movement, even if you guys haven't passed a resolution on specifically the apartheid and the occupation or the recent escalation in Gaza. Surely your workers can't contribute to war and genocide. So, I mean, we need labor to really step it up here in Canada. I've seen a few folks, I mean, as we always do, go to calls for a general strike. And, you know, with the refrain, if not now, when? And I feel like that's, we've had a lot of moments like that, if not now, when? But this is much bigger than all of those moments combined, right? If if there was ever an issue that mobilized people in modern day, you know, like the way folks mobilized against the war in Vietnam and Iraq, uh, this is one of them. Mm-hmm. I know uh, folks, you know, I've seen some steelworker flags as usual, you know, at the actions in Toronto. I think we've even seen some leaders speak. But one thing that came up in the Twitter space that we had last week or this week, mine is a blur in terms of dates, was 
about the real lack of visibility of unions in BC. Even though, you know, Victoria, Vancouver, there and other places in BC have had some really sizable actions, like really big protests. And normally at something like this, that would be the norm, right? Contingents of locals and their flags, so you know that they're there. Uh, it, may, it may seem obnoxious, but it serves a purpose, right? So folks know who is standing in solidarity. And that is really lacking in BC. And they made a point that I don't think I would have thought of. Uh, and I apologize, I don't know who it was, so I'm taking credit for their thoughts. But it's about the BC NDP. And you would think, well, that's a progressive province, right? They have elected the NDP. Their unions should be mobilized and feeling, you know, energized and emboldened. But it's actually the opposite. They're so worried of walking step in step with the NDP's position and not drawing heat. They're acting like candidates even, you know, in that way where they're worried about what they say and what the head party says and making sure it's all jiving with one another or else risking ostracization like Sarah Jama and any other groups that have been vocal on this. And so I thought that was enraging that on top of all the bad policies like NDP make when they get in power where, you know, they don't do revolutionary things, even though we make revolutionary demands. In times like this, they're, you know, in Ontario, we've seen it laid, laid clean, right? They're the opposition. Maybe they have to be more careful. But even when in power, the BC NDP is not doing a damn thing. And in fact, you could make the point that they are hindering wider mobilization on the issue. And... If, you know, if not an episode goes by where we don't remind people that the NDP is a detriment to our movement, I'll do it again. They are. Because if Labour doesn't come along with this, like, really, it, it becomes more difficult to be as disruptive as we need to be. Yeah. I mean, that it, it's just another case where it's like, the fr it goes to show, like, the freedom you get when you stop thinking in these electoral politics focused ways it's like oh suddenly you don't have to worry about the consequences of whether or not you toe the party line now you have the re freedom to actually fucking stand for what you believe in it's a beautiful thing to be able to do that and i mean you you, you could do it either way i mean there'll be consequences if you're in the ndp but that's the point like don't exist in spaces where there are consequences for doing the right thing right and, and now, like, you know, Sarah Jama can go online and flash the victory symbol with Jeremy Corbyn and not worry about taking flack for that. Exactly. And it, that's that's been a, a thing that I've, I've been happy to see the last few days has been, you know, people really like I feel like it's it's really sinking in this message. People are, are getting it. And, and, and that, that needs to happen because, you know, the NDP, you know, who's not going to tell you to go and blockade arms manufacturers? The NDP is never going to say that. I'll tell you, that is so true. We had a candidate up here in York Simcoe, Dave Selassie, and in his youth, I don't even think youth, I don't know how old he was, it doesn't matter. He was protesting outside a, a facility here in Ontario that was making parts for the nuclear bomb. And he got arrested for it. And when he wanted to run as an NDP candidate, Central was adamant, like, he scrubbed that. 
and they actually wouldn't vet him. We had to stage a protest and say we would not accept another candidate. Like it was a big, dirty kerfuffle. And they reluctantly allowed him to be candidate. And the only thing was that he had been a anti-war activist who was arrested. That was such a detriment to them, you know, and... And rightly so, you know, you see the Sun tried to print an article defaming him as he ran, calling him the only anti-nuclear war activist. And like, that was a bad thing. Like the labels people are throwing around for protesters, like they're bad things. Um, You know, it would be funny if it wasn't so detrimental either way. Yeah, like there's no room for activists there, not even in the slightest, uh, but, you know. There's a whole backlog of episodes to explain that. We won't <laughs> subject people to that come, come, again. It, it, it comes back to that saying, you know, like you try and say it changed the system from within. You'll either get flushed out or the system will change you. You know, that's what we're seeing. Yeah, And you know what? I think this on top of like their bad behavior, I think the amount of mobilization that folks are seeing from community groups and grassroots and these networks that we have been talking about on the show since day one. I mean, a lot of our guests have been absolutely pivotal in these movements. So it's kind of been like a real validating experience to know, you know, we have been learning from the folks that are actually willing to do the real work when it matters. And um, a few other I wanted to share like a a, a little personal story that because sometimes it's really it is small things because Whenever you're in the thick of this kind of work and it peaks, you know, at times like this, and then on top of that, you have really, really heavy news, like unbearable news. Surely you all understand, like, the personal toll that it plays, particularly on people, like, close to it, Palestinian comrades. And it it's the little things that can sometimes really lift you up. So today I went to the post office. And I immediately had to call Santiago. I was like, I got to record. I'm in a good space. Like, we got to do something today because I got really fired up at two of the smallest little things in my mail. I ordered a kafia from Pali Roots. It feels like forever ago. And it finally came. And I've never had one. I've always wanted one. I don't know why. Maybe I felt like I hadn't earned it. I think that's what I told myself. I hadn't earned it. Even though I had people offer me one, it just didn't feel right. But now it was like, no, I felt like it was armor. Like I could put it around my neck everywhere I go and without like actually screaming free Palestine as I do my groceries. But I still was. And so that really fired me up to get that in the mail. And I felt equipped better equipped and it, and it had a little tag that said made in Palestine. And of course, like I'm starting to tear up just thinking about it. Right. But also the smallest act of resistance here in the form of that radical love you're talking about. I came across a TikTok creator who in the midst of this all in Calgary, feeling completely helpless, not knowing what to do. And all they thought to do was, they make prints, right, using one of those kind of like old school hand press machines to press a template onto some handcrafted paper as part of their art. That is what they do as art. 
And so they're taking a olive branch, which is symbolic of Palestine, and putting it on little pieces of paper, and they were mailing it to anybody who asked. And, you know, although I didn't want to cost them postage, I knew how I'd feel if I received that small token. You know what it's like getting something in the mail these days, especially if it's from an actual person, not a bill, not a flyer, something with handwriting on it and your name. And inside was this most beautiful print And on the back, she had written, from the river to the sea. And I think she knew the boost that she'd be given by sending these these mailings out. It seems like such a small thing. Like, you would be like, oh, what did you do during the... (laughs) Sorry. Oh, what did you do during the revolution? Well, I sent out Prince of Olive Branches. But the fire that it lit in me and the kindness that it showed and the solidarity that it demonstrated... To me, that was kind of that radical love like, and d- demonstrative of how you could take whatever unrelated skill you think you have and contribute. Even if that's making a phone call to your comrades that you know are in the thick of it, or maybe if they're like me, they don't really like phone calls, you can text them <laughs> and just check in on people. That is community care. It's, it's all a part of it. All the little things are bigger than than what we can imagine. You know, the butterfly effect of it all. It, it's it's beyond our ability to comprehend. And, you know, I, I think <laughs> me and Jessa will, will both have this in common. It's like the feeling of not doing enough is something uh, I've struggled with a lot of different times. Um, no, ma- no matter how involved I've been um, and there's been times when you know this has been pretty much a, a full-time job to me like the amount of hours I've I, I put in uh, into into different movements no matter how involved I've ever been I've always had that feeling of this isn't enough and and it's just not true you know like it, it not it, this isn't that's a beautiful thing about being you know socialists being on the left is we're all in this together you know it's not on any one of us to do it all you know every little bit that any of us do contributes to the bigger movement and there's no point in 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 giving into that despair that feeling of, of of not doing enough because you know what ends up happening as a consequence of that feeling is so often then I lose the ability to do anything at all. And then I burn out and then it's because then I'm like, I keep trying to do more and I burn out. So, so I just, I want to make a call against that guilt, like allow yourself to, to do that little bit that, that you can do and know that it means the world. It really does. That guilt is, is real. I mean, we've talked about Gata so many times on the show She spoke to me the other day about playing a volleyball game and how, you know, walking on the court, she felt so guilty. She felt the weight of everything on her and as though she didn't deserve that time to play a volleyball game. And 
Like this is someone with family in Gaza, family in the West Bank. And to me, that's that's unimaginable. I don't know how you go and tell those folks, you know, it's okay, take a break. We got this for a minute. It's like that level of urgency they must feel 24-7 and anxiety. So, you know, although you're right, Santiago, that we can't all take it upon ourselves. I still would like to remind people that maybe have not chipped in a little bit that there's always more you can do. Because you know that there's some people out there that I think are satisfied with simply showing up once in a while. And one of the calls from Palestinians in the diaspora in the diaspora and in Gaza is to make public statements, right? It's one thing to show up at a rally as one of 20,000 people. It's important that the people around you know where you stand at the very least, right? Now is not the time to worry about those kinds of personal consequences, to be honest, if folks are not making public declarations at this point or contributing in some way, in some way, then you're absolutely complicit in this. And I don't normally say that, and perhaps it's my bias speaking, but I feel like this is, this is one of those moments in history where you don't have a choice of standing on the sideline. That you, you, you couldn't possibly imagine looking back at this in the history books and trying to figure out what you did and it was nothing. It can't be nothing. Even if it's sending out prints, it's using your art, your voice, your feet, whatever. You need to resist, right? Well, what's the, the Marx quote, you know? From uh, teach according to their need, from each uh, from each according to their ability, or yeah, that that's what it is, you know. Like, and 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 that's what we're saying. Like, like when we when we talk about like that guilt, that burnout, we all have different capacities to contribute, and that is a deeply personal thing that only you know. And so, don't like if if you have the capacity, the privilege the opportunity, the means to do something and you don't, then I don't have to tell you to feel guilty. You're going to feel guilty about that when you're reading the history books. You know, if you, but at the same time equally, like if you are, if your capacity is completely stretched and all you can do is one small thing like that, then at the same time that means the world. But we need only only you can know what your capacity is and you need to to live up to that. And we need to do it, everything we can while still looking after ourselves, looking after each other, you know, because it's not going to be over tomorrow. You know, like we need to sustain this. There is more to come and we need to make sure that we're able to keep doing that work. Because it's, it's, it's not enough to do it once, one day it's over. No, this is, it'll be over when, when the genocide ends, when the apartheid ends, when Palestine is free, 
And truly, the end is when all people are free. Because injustice everywhere, injustice anywhere, is still injustice everywhere. That is a wrap on another episode of Blueprints of Disruption. Thank you for joining us. Also, a very big thank you to the producer of our show, Santiago Halu Quintero. Blueprints of Disruption is an independent production operated cooperatively. You can follow us on Twitter at BP of Disruption. If you'd like to help us continue disrupting the status quo, please share our content. And if you have the means, consider becoming a patron. Not only does our support come from the progressive community, so does our content. So reach out to us and let us know what or who we should be amplifying. So until next time, keep disrupting.